Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. When most people think about the problem of mis- and disinformation, they think first of social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter. But how might the affordances of search engines, when used by ideologically motivated individuals, contribute to an unhealthy information ecosystem? Dr. Francesca Tripodi has a new book out on the subject, which I had the chance to discuss with her this week. My name is Francesca Tripodi. I'm an assistant professor at the School of Information and Library Science and a senior researcher at the Center for Information Technology and Public Life at UNC Chapel Hill. I'm the author of The Propagandist's Playbook with Yale University Press. How would you characterize your research interests more broadly before we talk about the book? Oh, that's a great question. So I'm a sociologist, and I'm really interested in how platforms, whether they be things like search engines or Wikipedia or the now defunct social media app Yik Yak, I'm interested in how these information systems interact with people and the way that society use these technological tools in ways that programmers did not anticipate or intend. So the through line in my research is I study what many refer to as socio-technical vulnerabilities. We could spend an entire hour on the demise <laughs> of Yik Yak, um, and I wish we had Another time day. to do that. Um, but perhaps we'll, we'll, we'll instead focus on this book. Yeah, I um, mean, I can do a really quick reason why Yik Yak failed. Give I it mean. to me. Okay, so Yik Yak failed for two reasons. One, it tried to be Facebook. It was actually filling this great need for undergraduates in between classes. They loved that there was no setup and they were trying to create profiles to sell data. And the demise of Yik Yak was also its downvote function. Well, I do recall uh, sitting in the audience at South by Southwest, listening to the two founders of Yik Yak talking about their plans for world domination. And uh, all of that, uh, of course, cratered relatively quickly. (laughs) Um, as people at South by Southwest uh, reported that others around them were flatulent and, uh, you know, other things of that nature. That's kind of what I remember about Yik Yak. But let's get serious. Let's get into this book. Um, So Propagandist Playbook, you write in the preface of this book that you started out this project in ethnography uh, Mm -hmm. in 2017, trying to understand how Trump voters made sense of the world through their news environment What was going on for you in 2017? Where were you? Absolutely. So I was in Charlottesville, Virginia, and the outcome of the election had shocked many people. You know, this was basically had tricked all the polls. But there was also this overwhelming narrative that these Russian bots or that fake news, how somehow tricked Trump voters into voting for Trump. And that to me seemed to lack complete agency and no context behind why voters might come to the polls uh, thinking that this was the representative for them. And so I'm an audience ethnographer. I'm interested in how communities make sense of the information around them. And I wanted to give voice and agency to conservative voters because I felt like the narrative was just thinking that they were these cultural dupes that had been tricked into voting for Trump. And there were also, I suppose, some very specific events happening in Charlottesville, the lead up to the Unite the Right rally. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I started this research project in May, like late May, early June. And at the same time as I was studying conservative groups, there was this underlying movement of white supremacist rallies that were coming to my hometown. And many people know about the Unite the Right rally, which happened roughly five years ago to the date. But very few people recognize that these rallies were building. Uh, there was one in May there that where Richard Spencer basically had a test run of white supremacists. They chanted the exact same phrases. They had a torchlit march that night. Um, it was just lower in scale. And then the Ku Klux Klan came to the site to oppose what they referred to as cultural genocide or white genocide. So taken together, these groups were claiming that the removal of the Confederate statue was akin to removing whiteness, which is quite fascinating, right? <laughs> because you also had conservative voters who were coming to the polls in the governor's primary race. You had um, essentially two main candidates running, Corey Stewart and Ed Gillespie. And Ed Gillespie barely won the primary. Corey Stewart was really galvanizing around this idea of cultural heritage being lost without explicitly noting that this cultural heritage is seeped in whiteness. And I'm sure that created a great urgency for you. Um, I don't want to say you went undercover, but you, you know, to do your ethnography, you describe adopting a, a more conservative persona, changing your clothes, your hair, your makeup, essentially embedding yourself uh, for a period of time in different communities that espouse conservative beliefs. So ethnography is about passing, what Goffman refers to as passing. So no one's going to trust you. You can't galvanize trust if you are far removed from what someone might want to talk to. Now, I was 100% honest with my voting record. I approached people telling them I was a sociology professor, and I gained access to these meetings by first going to the presidents of these meetings and getting approval to come to the meetings. And then at the first meeting that I attended, I let people know I'm a researcher here. I'm interested in how um, voters make sense of the news around them. But I also am white. You know, I'm a white woman. I have two kids. I'm married to a veteran. So it's easier for me to pass in these spaces by, quite frankly, just not saying very much. You know, <laughs> uh, I was I was very honest. If someone asked me who I voted for, I told them, well, in 2016, I voted for Hillary Clinton and enthusiastically. You know? um, but it was easier for me to blend in by just kind of adopting a more conservative persona, um, definitely. You write that you did kind of continually grapple with ethical questions surrounding your alternative identity. Um, were there moments in particular where you, where you felt like it was difficult to pass or to carry on? It wasn't so much being difficult passing. It was challenging for me sometimes to hold my tongue, right? So I think the most challenging periods of disconnect I had was witnessing the violence of the Unite the Right rally and then interviewing people who legitimately thought it had been staged as a way of making Trump look bad, right? Um, and, and so that disconnect or at the time of the Unite the Right rally, I was heavily embedded in media immersion where I was getting all of my news and information from sources of news that my respondents had flagged as trustworthy. So after going to the Unite the Right rally, I came home and watched the debrief on Fox. And 
I mean, the disconnect between what I was directly experiencing and what I was being told was happening um, was definitely challenging. I think the other ethical question, right, in terms of when you study information that's being shared on Facebook and um, Dana Boyd and Alice Marwick have really a fantastic article about context collapse and this idea of an invisible audience. You know, I, I know at first, I, this was very much a part of the informed consent process, right? Where I had my interview, I told them what I was doing. I had this project related and I would ask them if they were comfortable friending on Facebook. They said, yes, we friended, you know, and at first I think they remembered that, but after some time, you know, no one really remembers who they're friends with on these social media platforms. And, and so that's where, um, you know, there was that tension, right? Or for example, um, people I would meet at the events would try to friend me on Facebook afterwards. And I would decline their friend requests because I felt like I couldn't have a friend request without an explicit informed consent process that came with an individual interview, not the ethnographic observation. So that was like the, I think the tensions behind it was having people who were telling me in interviews, things that were just diametrically opposed to some of the realities that I was experiencing, as well as some of the things I just believe. This immersion lets you both observe individuals um, and then, of course, observe this media ecosystem. And you go on to sort of contextualize conservative thinking. You talk about the right-wing information ecosystem, uh, building on the work of scholars like Yokai Bankler, Robert Ferris. How do you sort of think of, at this moment, the right-wing media information ecosystem um, and what distinguishes it from mainstream media? Absolutely. So I would say Yohai Benkler and Rob Ferris and, and Hal Roberts' book, The Propagandist's Playbook, was extremely influential in my book. And you see it cited just kind of continuously. And they, I think, answered that question better than me, right? They did this extremely comprehensive analysis of, you know, just hundreds of thousands of shared news and information. And they mapped the information ecosystem and they found that there was a very distinct group of information creators that were not using traditional forms of journalistic integrity, that were circulating conspiracies among themselves, that were um, amplifying rhetoric that was not true. And what was fascinating, right, is many of the key players that they mapped out were the sources of news and information that people in my study were saying was trustworthy. Where I add to this and where I call it more of an information ecosystem than simply a media ecosystem is I explain how the information in these social media platforms and on Fox News and you know in the radio programming are interlaced and then mapped onto internet searching. And so what I try to demonstrate with that is that it's not just a way that people are it's more than just firsthand listening, that people are going out there and doing more research on what they are being told to research. And then the way that search engines kind of amplify and reconfirm these truths offline, as well as you know off TV, off radio. So kind of showing how they're more interconnected. You call this the active audience paradigm. Definitely, right. So active audience paradigm is a really wonderful tradition of thinking about. Um, it goes all the way back actually to Stuart Hall's concept of encoding and decoding. You know, there isn't just one way to listen to something. So one's cultural 
background heavily influences the way that people interact and engage with the media. And so I wanted to just get into the people that were consuming the ecosystem that Benkler et al. had identified and try to get to that deeper level of, well, why is this, why is this resonating? You know, if they're, if they're trafficking in conspiracies and non-truths, why are these resonating with their audiences in a way that is spurring people to go to the polls and vote? That's a very powerful motivation. So I was trying to get at some of those underlying questions. You spend a bit of time trying to kind of conceptualize uh, what you call the five F's, which you can describe if you like, but, you know, the kind of underlying themes, narratives that are recurrent in a lot of the conservative thinking and media that you encounter in your in your effort. But you also talk about two central conspiracies that seem to be kind of constantly at play. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the two central conspiracies you have is that the left is increasingly dangerous right? And that the media cannot be trusted because they are an extension of the left. And what you see here is this deflection of blame. And that it actually goes all the way back to Nixon, right? Describing those who were fighting for equal rights and racial equality during the civil rights movement. He, he was describing them as um, outside agitators, right? Uh, this is what this is what allowed people to think that there were both sides to blame for violence happening during this time. And, and so, yeah, I mean, this idea that the left is, is somehow dangerous or radical uh, is, is a huge theme um, used to deflect and also justify violence, right? And I think that is particularly concerning because it equates radical ideas like gun regulation or everyone should be paid the same, right? <laughs> They're equating these ideas with white supremacist concepts that are saying that white people have bigger brains, right? I mean, <laughs> these are things that they're saying on their podcasts and they're, they're claiming that these are backed with scientific evidence, right? And so to somehow equate that like extremism with radicalism, I think is extremely concerning, right? Because it creates this villain that the left is somehow um, hysterical, that they're run by emotion and not intellect, um, that they're the ones with the true facts, and that the left has increasingly become this party of intolerance. And, and that's a, a huge through line um, throughout all the media that I was consuming. So on some level, what you're observing is a group of people who are trying to kind of reject certainly mainstream media, other knowledge institutions, in many cases, reject facts or uh, come up with, you know, ideas that will support a kind of alternative narrative or alternative explanation for events in the world. Is part of this about sort of like, I don't know, hiving off this group of people uh, from that mainstream, making sure that those connections are severed? So what I would say, actually, it stems back to this concept of scriptural inference that I talked about in my 2018 Data and Society report and really expand out more in this book. But within the United States, there's this deep tradition of Protestantism, right? And, and one of the core tenets of Protestantism is rejecting being told what to think by clergy, right? <laughs> A huge part of Protestantism, especially in the United States, was founded on this idea that the individual is an equal member in the church as the pastor. And that through this deep reading of the Bible, 
they can come to interpret the word of Christ, right, through their own lenses, through their own minds, um, through their own set of intellect, regardless of if they have the same level of training that, right, that clergy members go through. There's degrees in theology that uh, for, for Protestantism was very much rooted in this like individual exploration, right? This, this equating between those that were attending and, and those that were leading. And so I think um, what I talk about is the conservative worldview, right, is really about this individual exploration. And so what I think is fascinating is that people who are in power that want to maintain these positions in power have created a way by which they are encouraging individual exploration with the goal of creating groupthink, but they are doing so in a way that's saying, don't trust me. You know, I'm not the one that you need to think about this or, hey, like, you know, even in Tucker Carlson's just kind of basic monologue is, is a series of questions, not statements. And those questions aren't designed to get people to think, hmm, maybe I should check this out, right? <laughs> Go to Google and think more or duck, duck, go. And any of these search engines will confirm falsities depending on what you start with. So um, what I think is, is actually quite brilliant behind this information ecosystem is that they've understand that their audiences are much more inclined to trust information or trust stuff that they that they find on their own. And, and that is different from other audiences who are more inclined to trust experts in the field. There are so many different ways that this uh, idea of scriptural interpretation you look at in the book. Um, I was struck by one particular anecdote about a, a Bible study that it started with a reflection on, uh, I think, a bit of Old Testament scripture, and then ended up with a kind of reflection on a tax reform bill. Many of the respondents that I met with participated in large churches where there was um, offshoot um, hallways and small rooms where Bible studies would take place before the main service. And so we were in this Bible study together and it was, you know, I was raised Catholic, so I'm not really familiar with reading the Bible, to be quite honest, like Catholics don't really read the Bible in the same way. So going to a Bible study itself was different for me, but I, you know, got to this, this Bible study and we were reading the texts people were sharing their own stories and then just it shifted focus. And the leader of this group said, you know, I want you to apply the same um, direct reading that we're doing to the new tax reform bill. And then he takes out this tax reform bill and he starts reading from it. Right. And then he says, now these provisions, they are going to drastically influence different people differently, whether you're the farmer or the small business owner. And so I encourage you not to trust what the media is telling you about this bill, that you go and you actively read it yourself. Now, whether or not people left that Bible study and went home and downloaded a copy of the tax reform bill, I do not know. But I, that is that moment where I realized that this focus on inerrancy is uh, different from the way that progressives interact and engage with the Bible. And there's this fabulous book called Prophets and Patriots, where Ruth Bronstein did this incredible ethnography of how conservative groups and progressive groups interact and engage with religion. It's different, right? It's a, it's a focus on the direct text versus empathetic listening, right? <laughs> and storytelling. And so if, if you're coming to your, to religion, which 
sociologists have demonstrated is a key way of creating these everyday routines and these constructs of reality. You know, if you're coming to religion with this direct understanding of a text and and notion that you can understand these texts as just an everyday individual, that practice gets applied to tax reform bills. It gets applied to the Constitution. I mean, we see this in the Supreme Court right now as highly conservative judges are applying a direct translation of the Constitution without any reflection on when this constitution was written, by whom this constitution was written for, and why it might not be as representative of today's public as it was when it was written um, in a time when I certainly was not considered a person. <laughs> you know, Black people were not considered per- persons. Indigenous people were not considered persons. So, you know, understanding and reflecting on that, I think, is is very important. So we've got this notion of conservatism, not as just worldview, but also as media practice. Yes. Um, and in this, uh, you know, one tool looms large. Um, you write that regardless of party affiliation, it was clear from my interviews that voters' primary method for finding political information was via Google. A lot of trust in Google. Absolutely. Now, I would say since my I'll have to write an addendum at some point, right? Because since my book, there has been a huge push to distrust Google, right? I served on the Senate Judiciary hearing where there was a you know, this idea of like media bias and silencing conservatism. And there's been this push to shift from Google to DuckDuckGo. But what I think is incredible, right, is regardless of which one you go to, you can go to Bing, you can go to DuckDuckGo, you can go to Google, you can go to any of these search, search engines. If you prime audiences with a set of keywords and tell them that they need to go do their own research on these very distinct phrases, the way the internet works is it it works in relevance, regardless of which search engine you choose. Now, the search engines you choose have very different practices when it comes to how they display that information. And they also have very different practices when it comes to like how they sell your data that comes through that information. But when it comes down to a search engine, it's programmed in terms of relevance. A key part of relevance are the the query itself. What are the words you're looking for? Because algorithms can't read. They're not human beings. So we human beings have to tag content in phrases and words that are compatible with (laughs) with algorithms so that when they're searching the billions of things available online, they can match right? They can quick match our query and send us this information back. And so those keywords that we start with are so, so important. And very few of us recognize the role keywords play in determining the kind of information that's going to be returned to us. This is where you introduce this idea of ideological dialects. What are what are ideological dialects? Sure. So I, I draw on Arlie Hochschild's work of deep stories, which is a sociological way of thinking about how do you see the world? What are the stories you've told yourself so often that they don't even feel like constructions? <laughs> they just feel like natural, inevitable truths. The example that I provide, so I have a political one that we could use and I have a non-political one, but the political one I use a lot in talks is how you conceive of immigration. So if you're someone who conceives of of immigrants as um, line cutters, right, or people who are taking your jobs as illegal aliens, quote unquote, 
you might start a query with something like illegal alien voter fraud. And if you search for illegal alien voter fraud, the top return is is ICE, um, the ICE, ICE.gov that shows like 19 cases of voter fraud committed by um, undocumented workers. But if you have this worldview or an ideological di- dialect that embodies immigration as part of American life, and you're like, hey, actually, these people should vote, <laughs> you know, and you go to, a, go to a search engine and you search undocumented workers, voting rights, you know, the top return, I think at the time, this changes, obviously, but it's like the ACLU, you know? And so ICE.gov is not actually fake news. You know, that's real. Um, ACLU is not fake news. That's also real. But these two websites will return diametrically opposed information that will ultimately reaffirm the position that you started with. And so we are actually living in these parallel internets where because of the way we start querying, um, these information silos are kind of built around us in ways that we have much, I think, much more agency around it than we're giving ourselves credit for. So Google is organizing the world's information, but there within that organization, there are ideological sub-organizations that people are building. Sure, absolutely. I mean, the the algorithm also learns <laughs> from the input, right? Uh, the, the output or how they tag and categorize and what information is returned to you, that's proprietary. That's on Google. We don't know what they're doing. And we also know that they're definitely amplifying their own work, right? Like there's been really great research that's shown that in their top returns are like subsidiaries of the company. And and that's, you know, I'm not a technological apologist. Like they're very clearly profiting from our engagement with the platform. And they've changed their design so that we stay on their platform instead of going to the website. For example, there's a great study that shows like Wikipedia. So their knowledge graphs are often drawn from Wikipedia. When knowledge graphs were introduced, there was like a 25% decline in people actually going to Wikipedia because they just read what's on the knowledge graph and they don't click on the Wikipedia page. So, you know, Google is definitely part of this problem. But I think only thinking of the technology is a disservice because it does not put any of the onus on the individual that starts their search, right? And if you're starting your search, uh, with a very specific kind of thing in mind, um, you're going to get that specific information. Or an example I saw a lot in my research, people said this to me out loud, you know, sometimes I'll go to check it, but the only thing I see is the stuff I already saw on Twitter. And I'm like, well, if you Google what you saw on Twitter, then yeah, the only thing you are going to see is what you saw on Twitter. But, and that's not to say these people were, these people are smart, smart people. You know, and it, it's like, and and so for them, the lack of any other information meant that, well, then nothing must exist out there besides this information. This information must be true or there'd be other perspectives instead of saying, huh, maybe this information is really specific. And so that's why there's this only this information, you know, maybe there is actually other stuff out there, but because I Googled this very specific phrase, that's the only stuff coming back. You give the example of Trish. Toys for Tots, Target, perhaps that would illustrate a little bit about what you're talking about. Oh, that's my favorite example ever, right? Because we sat down at lunch and she's telling me how, 
you know, she votes with her dollars and that's not exclusive to, I mean, obviously progressives vote with their dollars as well. And so I was, I was saying, well, what's an example? And she's like, well, I don't shop at Target anymore because they stopped supporting the military. And I was shocked to hear that. Right. I, I mean, I'm married to a veteran. Many of my families are veterans. I've never heard of Target being bad news for the, (laughs) I love Target. Right. So I said, well, how would you look for that information? She's like, you know, you could just search for like support of the U.S. military or toys for tots, but those are really general inquiries. And so when you, but what's fascinating, right? When you look, when you did a search toys for tots military, her claim, her like unsubstantiated claim was like immediately confirmed, you know, target does not support the military. And then the first return was a Snopes article. But what's fascinating for this is like, if you click on the Snopes article, it shows that it's false. But the recap of what they claimed was in the Snopes article made it seem to me like at a quick read that Trisha's claim was true. And then underneath Snopes was just like a Facebook page with that was seven years old, right? <laughs> that was saying this. And so doing these quick searches, not not taking our time, not engaging in that exploratory search practice, relying on Google to just be this like quick fact checker for us can definitely lead a lot of people astray where they really walk away thinking that they've done their work that like, okay, I'm going to make sure I'm not spreading untruths. Let me go check it for myself and they go check it for themselves. And they can walk away thinking false information is true. So your book gets into a lot of detail around the complexity of keywords, tags, um, you know, and again, this broader participatory process that we're talking about here, producing, ordering information. But you see this as a kind of, you know, structured effort in many ways. Is it fair to say that, you know, this effort probably is one that any ideological group is committed to? I would say this is a strategy that any ideological group could, in theory, activate. Right. So, well, one, we wanted to see are, I was very curious, you know, are conservative creators the only ones tagging their content in this sophisticated way? Or are progressive content creators also engaging in like this metadata warfare, right? This like tagging uh, their content in ways to, to understand like how it, how it elevates. And so I partnered with a data scientist and he had this script where he could pull from YouTube how content creators were tagging their own content. And I mean, it was just like content creators on the left just had no idea how people look for information. I mean, an example is something like AOC. So AOC is Congressman uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez's initials. And she goes by that on Twitter. It's like her Twitter handle. But the right-wing media has co-opted that phrase to vilify her as this radical, crazy person. And so they tag their content. Like, that's like a key word that they're tagging their content as, AOC. And when you search AOC, there's far more conservative-leaning content regarding this congresswoman than there is actual legitimate, I mean, her Twitter handle isn't even the first return. And that her Twitter handle is at AOC. Um, so just kind of understanding how the how information flows, it seems that the, and, and this is also documented in uh, Jen Schrady's work, The Revolution That Wasn't. She looked at how 
conservative and progressive uh, grassroots campaigns utilize the power of information sharing to to create social movements. And she also found that because of things like time and money and power, <laughs> um, the politicians on the and activists on the right were were just better at it. Um, that, that's not to say that strategists on the left, political strategists on the left, can't do it. Uh, but like since the 1990s, right, political strategists, or even earlier, the 60s and 70s, political strategists on the right have been very carefully articulating key words and phrases to mean things that those who vote for them understand what they mean. And they create a set of talking points that are extremely cohesive, that are organized around the five Fs of conservatism, that resonate with voters. And so, yeah, I mean, in theory, anyone could do this. But what I look at both historically as well as what's happening on the internet um, it's very clear that not everybody is doing this. In the book, you know, if folks want to go deep, they can learn more about these ideas around keyword curation, strategic signaling, other ways that folks are leveraging the architecture of the web uh, in order to kind of create this information ecosystem and continue to feed it. But l- let's just get right down to it because you do address this in the book. Is this project ultimately undergirded by a sort of white supremacist? intent. So what I show in my book is that white supremacy has become ingrained in a lot of mainstream thinking and that it has been that way for quite some time. And I'm not the first person to say this. I would say black scholars have been saying this for a very long time. But what I demonstrate and and you know this is also again like research has been done for quite some time. So things like privatization the hate on public schools. You know, these very much were tied to integration efforts that said you can no longer segregate public schools. The way that lawmakers defunded public transportation also coincided with integration, right? And, and making segregation illegal. But what I think is particularly alarming is the way that a lot of these narratives then just kind of get recycled with new YouTube personalities. And so, and then they slap a different name on it, right? And then it's like the same, like different or something. And so some of the examples that I draw on in my book that do this is, you know, the mantra that got thousands of people to the Capitol and which ultimately ended in in an insurrection, right? And people storming the capital of the United States and denying a transfer of power after a free and fair election. And the people were brought there because they were told the election had been stolen. And this idea of stop the steal, that was the name of the rally, stop the steal rally. And at the time, Google, if you typed in stop the, Google would autocomplete steal. And then you could find your local stop the steal rally. And what's fascinating at the same time that that was happening, my research for this book had completed, but I was doing a separate research project on how information was circulating on Facebook concerning reopened groups, groups that were wanting to reopen uh, places of worship, education, and business during COVID-19. And I started seeing this mantra appearing on these Facebook groups. And you can look at Google Trends data, and there's this like spike in Stop the Steal that happened around the election. But this idea of a stolen election actually traces all the way back to the 1800s. 
after Reconstruction when Black men got the right to vote and they elected a record number of Black men to represent them in Congress. And so all of a sudden you see this and Du Bois' work is incredible. Actually, Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois, in his book, Black Reconstruction in America, uses the phrase misinformation in his chapter on the history of propaganda to say that as Black people were getting the right to govern themselves, all of a sudden you start hearing this lie that elections are stolen. And so I, I think it's extremely important for us to recognize that these aren't new ideas, that these are actually recycled concepts. And so in my book, I do the best I can, right, to look historically at how, at parallels between ideas being circulated now versus then. Another great example is this idea of outside agitators. So Antifa became the way that conservative politicians and pundits were trying to to deflect the violence that occurred on January 6th. And that was also um, that key word actually circulated on like 4chan message boards during the August 12th Unite the Right White Supremacist Rally. So they were like, oh, Antifa, these are these outside agitators. And they use the phrase (laughs) outside agitators. Outside agitators were how they referred to Black people fighting for equal rights under Martin Luther King, right? They, they use the exact same analogy. They're being paid to show up. And that idea, that whole concept is validated through misinformation that somehow Black people aren't capable of organizing themselves or that somehow they are happy with the way things are. And that if it weren't for these agitators that were paying people and putting these bad ideas in their heads, everything would just be fine and we'd just be fine. And so understanding that through line of misinformation and the centuries by which this misinformation has been circulated, I think is a huge part of my book. And and no, and I hope some people can understand that through line in a way that I don't think has been talked about enough. There is substantial academic literature on the idea that conservative people engage with, consume, produce misinformation more so uh, than folks across the, the aisle. Is this behavior, this set of behaviors in many ways, it, do, you, do you regard it as a kind of, I don't know, natural response? You know, when the facts aren't in your favor, when, you know, science isn't in your favor, when history, uh, the actual history of the country isn't necessarily in your favor, that of course you're going to create counterclaims. I mean, I'd like to actually take it one step further and saying like conservatism isn't actually in the favor of many of those who vote for it. Uh, that it's very much predicated on a, a very small number of persons retaining wealth and power. And that a lot of the policies that they advocate for under this guise of like, people are stealing your jobs or if we pay people more, you end up more in taxes. And these are things that are not true, right? <laughs> they don't they don't serve the public in a way that, and I, and I think you can just look at how, I guess we could end it with like one of my favorite stories was when I was working and you with USAID and I had people coming from all over the world to the United States. And there was a gentleman from Ghana here. And he was like, how is there homelessness? in the United States. Like, how is that even possible? 
when there's so much wealth in our country? How is it possible that there are people sleeping on the street in your nation's capital? And that's a question I think just really like resonated with me, you know? So I guess I would just say if our policies are working so well, if there is a lot of truth behind it, then why are so many of us failing? Your book certainly complicates the sort of role of big tech. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily, um, I guess, let big tech off the hook or let Google or Facebook or other firms off the hook. Um, but it you know, asks us to think about the role of, of the audience and uh, the user as participating in these activities. But you know, just to sort of finish up here, you know, in the past few days of social media platforms, TikTok, Facebook, uh, to some extent Google, they've all announced you know, what they plan to do about election misinformation in the 2022 midterm cycle. Would you say, based on your analysis, that those efforts are limited in their potential efficacy by the phenomena that you're describing here? Yeah. I mean, I would say, so I don't study the same platforms with the same level of research. And so I wouldn't feel comfortable kind of replying to that specific question because I don't want to talk more than I than I know. But I would say that, you know, the one way that I would I would say I do not let Google off the hook or other search engines off the hook is that the design shifts in how they order information really do matter more than I think they are recognizing. You know, Sarah Roberts and Siva Vainanathan, they've talked a lot about this idea of like slow media, right? How can we engage more in, in Sarah Roberts is at an information school as well. So, you know, we like this idea of exploration. How can we encourage people to take more time in searches that really matter, right? So like, yeah, if you're, if you're cooking and you can't remember how many teaspoons are in a tablespoon and you don't have your tablespoon and you go to Google real quick, you ask Alexa, sure, that's a quick fact retrieval process. But if you're trying to figure out the complexities of an of an attempted coup on the United States government and you're like down with just the first return, maybe we need to think think a little bit more. And also I think we we often conceptualize these companies as like the helpful librarian or the public sphere and like they are neither the public sphere nor the public library. These are private companies heavily interested in increasing shareholder profit by selling our data. And so if we're really seeking out good information, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't matter any of the things that they would change. It's odd to me that we're trusting large corporations to find information and that no one is like, hmm, that's kind of weird, right? That we're just cool with very large corporations giving us knowledge. So I would say <laughs> that's that's where I can see any of these. Great. Put in whatever, however many, anticipate however much you can to try to tag bad content. But also I've noticed, I don't really think these are working that well. So like, for example, I tried to boost, I gave a talk at a bookstore. Yes. Last night on my book and the bookstore, the local bookstore tried to, tried to boost the talk and Facebook flagged it as like, political advertising. And so they wouldn't, they wouldn't do it now. Yeah. I'm talking about politics for sure, but that's different. Like, so I feel like it's a, once again, they've created these algorithms with very specific tags and 
they're they're trying to create these techno solutions to a problem that's like way deeper than that. And I think the problem is actually that people should not look for information <laughs> only on Facebook. And if you're looking for some information on Google, you have to recognize, okay, why are these the returns being returned to me? What else might be out there? Are all these returns saying the same thing? Isn't that odd that only these people are saying this? What else could I think about in terms of what I search? Is there any recommendation that you would give to executives at Google or at Facebook or at other firms that are responsible for creating these techno-social systems? What would you tell them? Do they have a responsibility to disrupt this behavior? So I think they're very different platforms, but I think the one, so I would first say like Pinterest, for example, did a great job. They were like, guess what? Pinterest is not where you should go for health information. So anything regarding health information, we're going to take down, you know? And I think Facebook is also, Facebook's a great way to like post pictures of your kids and like connect with that person from high school that you kind of forgot about. But how we just, and, and, the, and they just kind of, they made it our quote unquote news feed. But that's actually not where we should be getting the news. And I, <laughs> I really think that Facebook has a responsibility to say, we are a social media platform. We're great for sharing pics and like connecting family and keeping in touch with that like friend. But maybe we're not, maybe we aren't qualified, nor should we be a space where people are getting information. Um, I would say, you know, with Google, uh, how they're ordering information um, really matters. Uh, where they're scraping these knowledge graphs matter. Um, when their knowledge graphs are wrong, how can people let them know? You know, I can, I like know who to tweet at and who to send an email to. I'm just like, that should be something that everyone has access to. When they're noticing wrong information, how can they get that fixed? The book is The Propagandist Playbook, How Conservative Elites Manipulate Search and Threaten Democracy. Francesca, thank you so much for speaking to me. Thank you for your time, Justin. This was awesome. That's it for this episode. Hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guest, thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.